Well, thank you again for being with us today. Welcome. Welcome to our regulars, to our newbies, and to anyone who may have just been dragged here this morning. I praise you for whoever, I praise the Lord for whoever did the dragging because this is really a, a, a sermon and a teaching and a text that is full of the grace of God and good news. It's about this, this meal that we will share here momentarily that Jesus initiated with his disciples in that upper room, the Passover meal, and that we celebrate every week here at Christ Church Santa Fe. A, a meal that helps us be really honest about our hunger in this hungry world, and a meal that reminds us that we have a good Father who has sent His Son and by His Spirit has promised to feed and nourish us, not once, but in an ongoing manner. Food for the hungry soul. So you might wonder, I mean, it is Advent after all, and a lot of churches, a lot of my buddies who are pastors, they're all doing like an Advent series. We decided to just stay in the gospel of Mark, and not just in Mark's gospel, but in Advent, stay in these passion narratives, right? The narratives that talk about the suffering of Jesus as we lead up to the cross, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. So we are now on Thursday, after the triumphal entry. We've seen Jesus in the temple on last Tuesday, not quite sure what he was doing on Wednesday, resting, relaxing, in Bethany with his friends watching football. But now, it's Thursday, and they are going to prepare the Passover meal. Thursday sundown becomes the next day in the way of Jewish days. Sundown is the next day, and they will celebrate this Passover meal. They will eat the Passover lamb, and Jesus will teach them about the true and greater Passover, the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. So it's appropriate to stay in Mark during Advent, a season of longing. Advent means arrival. He's coming. Because this is why Jesus came. This Lord's Supper is a sign and a symbol. We might say a sacrament, a means by which God delivers to you as you come by faith, his grace to communicate to you the full blessings and promises of his covenant. This is why he came. Not only to forgive your sins, never any less than that, but also to nourish you and to feed you as his children. Jesus was born in a manger into the brokenness of this world so that he might redeem all that is fallen, so that his promises represented in this meal may truly go as far as the curse is found. Not just in a spatial sense, but into the depths of our own hearts as Jesus is excavating our sins and idols that we might turn from death unto him and be healed. Mark 14, the Lord's Supper is all of that. As we come by faith, all the promises of God in tasteable form, visceral, tasteable form. Remember, we're not Gnostics, by which I mean we don't just believe in a spirit world out there that is all spirit and it's disembodied, right? The force from Star Wars or Brahma or something along those lines. No, we are embodied souls. Jesus has a body right now. So somehow, oh, Jesus is hidden in my heart. Okay, in his divinity, yes, by the Holy Spirit, he is spiritually with you in your heart if you believe in him. But in his body, he's in heaven with, with holes in his hands and his feet as a great high priest sitting at the right hand of God interceding for you. We believe in embodied souls and visceral, tasteable, taste and see meals. And this meal, as you'll see from our text, 
provides us with a deep contrast. I was talking to John about this. It'd be much easier if all we had was this last paragraph. Super weird, right? Get a whole paragraph on preparations about a guy. It's kind of like the triumphal entry, right? Going to the city, find the cult that nobody's ridden on. It's one of those deals. And then all of a sudden you get this thing about betrayal. Like I came to church to be happy. And now we have this whole thing about the disciples, his closest followers, betraying him. Now we know it's Judas, but they don't know it's Judas. And so there's a deep contrast in our text. Man betrays, the Lord blesses. We run from God, he redeems his running children unto himself. This meal, the Lord's Supper, is for those who are hungry. It's for us. And so I just want to begin with a question because I believe this is sort of a foundational question in Mark's text. Are you hungry? And I'll confess to you, I'm not always that hungry. Sometimes I just feel like I have my life together. You know, I, I, kind of, I look at my bank account, I look at my wife, my kids, my life, everything's pretty good. And I don't feel a, a real deep sense of spiritual hunger all the time. I can, I can kind of look at what I've built, my mini kingdom, my comfort. Of course, it can all be taken away in a minute if you get on Cerritos. But I, but I look at it, and in the moment, I'm like, I'm good. I'm full. Oftentimes full of myself. I confess that to you. I think we should confess it to one another. Church is a place where we can be real. Are you hungry? Or perhaps the better question is, where are you hungry? Right? Maybe you have 10 things in your life, and nine of them, you're spinning those plates. But there's always that one. A loved one, a family member, a friend, a spouse, a child, someone at your work, your boss, the person who works for you. Where are you hungry? The holidays really bring this out. The holidays are great. They're fun. Thanksgiving, Christmas, busy, parties, feasting, drinking. And yet research shows that this is a time of year when uh, people, even people that don't normally face these sort of things, face acute moments of melancholy and, and depression. All the fun and the family and the events r remind many folks that they're actually pretty alone. And it's not a question of resources because you may not have much or you may have a ton. We've all met people that have amazing wealth and they're deeply sad and lonely. For many, it's a time of sadness and the reality of separation from loved ones, broken relationships, or perhaps loss, the memory of loss. And that's why every week we come to experience, by the grace of God, the power of what N.T. Wright refers to as a warm meal from the hands of God. N.T. Wright writes that sharing this meal together reflects a deep human instinct. We always mark significant moments with significant meals. Maybe some of you experienced this at Thanksgiving, right? Weary traveler, you're going somewhere, people coming to you, and then all of a sudden you go into that home, you smell that food, the fireplace is on, you know, there's appetizers, there's drinks being poured, there's catching up with family and friends. Food binds us together. Food doesn't just create an environment for making family, it's actually an instrument for making family. Meals do a thing to us. And so the Lord's Supper this morning as we get into this text is an invitation to you to come by faith. Again, not faith in religion and all the hypocritical Christians that you know, not the least of the which is the one standing on stage. There are a lot of hypocrites and good for you. We have room for one more, always. 
okay? We don't want to live in our hypocrisy, but what I'm saying is it's an invitation not to come to religiosity, but to come to Christ. The disciples had religiosity in, in spades, and yet they all asked, one by one, is it I? The Lord's Supper is an invitation to inclusion and embrace in the grace of God. But it's also something we need to take seriously. It is beautiful and glorious and gracious, but it is also deep and it's costly. And so we're going to look at the supper this morning in kind of three, three points. The first is the backdrop. The second is the betrayal. And the third is the blessing. Backdrop, betrayal, and blessing. And we have to look at the backdrop because we have to set the scene. I, I mean, I, you know, I study these things for a living. And as I was studying this week, there's a ton of stuff I learned about the Passover. So I just want to assume that maybe we don't all know these things. And yet Jesus chooses a very specific time, a specific feast, a sign and a symbol, this Passover meal to show his disciples his love and what his love means, what grace means, what keeping covenant to you means, what him being faithful means to me in all my moments of unfaithfulness, he chose to do it in this way at this time before his death. So let us first consider the Jewish Passover. You'll remember the story, of course, from Exodus 12. God is bringing down his curses upon Pharaoh and his unbelief. He won't let God's people go. And so God says, you know, a spotless lamb must be slain. A blood sacrifice must be made. Take the blood, put it over the doorpost, and I will keep you safe. The angel of death, the angel of judgment will pass over, not the good Jews versus the bad Jews, any of the Jews that are in the house. I can see some Jewish grandma going out to find her, you know, delinquent Jewish grandson and pull him back by the ear and throw him into the house. Because it wasn't just the good and upright and righteous and had it all together Jews that got saved that night. It was any Jew that was covered by the blood of the Lamb. This represented liberation from the slavery and oppression of Egypt. Deliverance, true deliverance by a deliverer. Wrought to the people of God by a mediator, Moses. Moses stood before God and between the people of God and mediated the blessing of this covenant as Moses explained to God's people that the only way you can be saved isn't to be strong enough to fight the Egyptians, but to hide in your own home with blood on the doorpost in faithful obedience. And for Israel, this act, the Passover act in Exodus, which God then says later after they walk through the Red Sea that they are to repeat this sacrifice once a year, this was part of creating the nation of Israel. Before the Passover and the escape and deliverance from Egypt, you, you didn't really have a particular national Israel. And so this was a, a central feast to the Jews. In Jesus' day, it was celebrated on the 15th day of the first month. For them, that would have been around the 15th day of April. And the purpose of this central feast was to remember that you have been rescued by the true and living God. Not by your own striving and your own strength, not by your own power. You were helpless and hopeless in Egypt, but God heard the cry of the afflicted and he reached down in his mercy to provide a way that you might be saved. Remember Yahweh's rescue. And this is why this feast included a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So as Jesus is having this meal, the city had swelled, as we heard last week, 
Some estimates say between 1 and 1.3 million people came to Jerusalem and its outskirts, for you had to eat the Passover within the walls of the city. People came to be with their friends and their families once a year from far and wide, towns all over the nation and region, so that they could walk and eat the story of redemption. They could rehearse it, not just with words, but in an embodied, physical way. Eat the story. Walk the story. Rehearse the story. Be rewritten into the story. Remember that this is your story, not just by what you hear, but by what you do. The story is that God is faithful to keep his promises. That God himself, even in exile, even under, under oppression, even when deliverance is needed, God can be trusted. And so the meal itself went in eight stages. I'm not going to read through all eight stages, but I found this pretty interesting. They would bless the wine. They had multiple cups of wine. They would bring in the food, right? Unleavened bread because they had to race out of Egypt. They didn't have time for the bread to rise. Bitter herbs to remind them of their pain. Fruit to help them look forward to the kingdom of heaven. Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the lamb. And of course, the lamb itself would be slain the day before and then consumed and eaten by the whole family. Again, the whole family. That like really frustrating, annoying, we're not even sure where he's at, uncle. That like four-year-old kid who can barely understand what's going on. Everybody got to come and hear and retell and rehearse the story and feast on the promises of God as the father of the house, or in Jesus' case, the rabbi, would be admonishing them, believe this story. Believe that this is your story, right, in the world. As John said earlier, geopolitics, wars and rumors of wars, injustice, things that we are praying would come to an end and God would bring his reign fully. But in the midst of all that, believe that this is your story. This is the true story about you, child of God, rescued one, not merely rescued from sin, but nourished and fed by God himself. And not just once, not just when you deserve it, not just if you come to church and you're having a really good day and had a really good week. It didn't say anything naughty or watch anything naughty or look at anything naughty this last week because that would disqualify 97% of you. But no, this is your story because it's God's story for you as a gift. They would eat this meal together as they rehearsed Psalms 115 through 118. And I would encourage you to go back this week and read those Psalms 115 through 118. These were the psalms that they would sing together as a family at the Passover meal. Remember. And yet, let's not forget that for these people, it was really hard to remember. Really hard for these disciples in this place at this time. Just as it is for some of you because of what's going on in your life or the world. Even as they celebrate the Passover 2,000 years ago with Jesus, they're under Roman oppression. The people of God, as we've seen in the judgment on God's physical temple, Jesus, the true and greater temple reality, us filled by the Spirit, now stones in a living temple, not made by human hands, judgment on that old physical temple was a reminder that they were burdened by the law and religiosity. So like two huge weights on your back, Roman oppression on the one time, Jewish second temple pietism and religiosity on the other. 
New Egypts, they must have thought. I thought we were already delivered from all of this. And yet they came to do it faithfully year after year. You can just imagine that it would get a little exhausting. I mean, let's just be honest. Like, all right, Lord, we do this every year. When are you going to show up? I mean, have any of you ever felt that way? When have you felt that way recently? Man, God, I've really been praying about this. I've really been praying for them. I've really been longing for this. Like, are you going you gonna to come? You're going to do the things you sort of said you promised to do in your word or no? Okay, just wait. Wait again. Okay, wait again. Yeah, come back next year. You can imagine their exhaustion and their doubt. Their feelings. As the, as the lamb and the bread were real, so too were real to these folks. The effects of the fall, the injustice in their own world, the fact that they were, in essence, slaves to the Romans. But the Passover is a reminder to them and to us that God will not abandon his children. That's why the name Jesus itself, Yeshua, means he will save. God saves. So Jesus says, look, I know you're tired. I know we've been doing this a lot, but I'm about to do a new thing. Go and prepare the feast. It may look bleak because of Rome, but don't look at Rome. Look at the promise. Don't look at the world. Look at God. Don't look at your feelings. Again, this is my whole generation, right? Whatever I feel is what's most true. So if I'm feeling good, everything's great. If I'm having a bad day, oh, the sky is falling. You know, and a lot of other folks, my dad, just like, wait, what, man? Like, good days, bad days. Just go, do it. No, it's not what's outside of us. It's not even the feelings inside of us. It's the fact that God will keep his promise. He will not abandon his children. So don't look to Rome. Look to Christ and rehearse the promise. We heard this read beautifully earlier by Nico. I thought about maybe asking Nico if he would just take the whole service. Couldn't you just listen to that for like an hour? Like, I, can I get audio Bible, Nico audio Bible? Like, I don't know. I'd probably need a couple boxes of tissues if I was going to do that. But um, John 14, 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in God. He, he was torn apart for you. His blood was spilled for you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, Jesus says. Trust also in me. And then what does he say? I go to prepare a place for you. Even as you disciples are making preparations for the Passover, Jesus is making and has made preparations in heaven, a home, a warm home and a warm meal of which this is merely a foretaste that we will be invited into forever. That's the backdrop. But we also need to look at the betrayal. And here's what's interesting about the betrayal. And, you know, this is a covenant meal. Here's what that means. A covenant was an ancient Near Eastern contract. It was a way that these ancient Near Eastern kings, suzerains and vassals, lawyers, made binding contracts that you could not break. They would take an animal, a lamb. They would cut it in half. They would put the pieces of the animal on the side of the road with the blood. And then both people would walk through, both parties would walk through. And here's what it meant. If you keep the contract, you will live. If you do it not, you will become like this animal and you will die. Now, let me explain to you. When we break this bread later, 
That is exactly the picture that we are putting forth. The Lord's Supper is a covenant meal. It is a meal of the covenant of grace. Christ himself is the lamb who is torn in two. And Christ himself is the one, the second Adam, the new Moses who has kept the promises of God and walked through the covenant and kept those promises so that we now, hidden with Christ in God, can also walk through. This is why Jesus in this meal is showing himself to be, as I said, the true and greater Passover. So when we hear about betrayal and then the Bible uses the word woe, that should have keyed something for you. Oh, it's a prophetic word. That's a covenant word. Blessings and curses. Keep the covenant and you will live. Keep it not and you will die. Keep the covenant and you will be blessed. Keep it not and you will be cursed. Keep it and you will experience the glory of God. Keep it not. Woe unto the man who breaks it. So again, we have the contrast in our text. Not just Judas, but all the 12. Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? I love that Mark leaves this ambiguous, more ambiguous than Luke and Matthew. He says they go one by one and they ask, is it I? And the fact is that we come, even as God's children, even those who come this morning believing in Jesus, we come as those who look at our lives, look at this last week and go, yes, I see myself there. I see myself in that question, the question of betrayal. Is it I, as a covenant breaker, as an oath breaker, as one who betrays, as one who is, as humbling as this is to say, deserves the consequences of covenant breaking? Ed Welch puts it this way. I thought this was interesting. It's impossible to get to the good news of the cross from a starting point that limits our moral responsibility, right? I was just born pretty good. You weren't. Put two of you at two years old in one room with one toy. I will prove it to you. Two of you at two years old in one room with one toy. And you'll have Lord of the Flies in no time. Okay? It's impossible to get to the good news of the cross and the promises of the cross and the Lord's Supper from a starting point that limits our moral responsibility. I'm not a betrayer. I'm not a Judas. One by one they ask, is it I? Are you, are you more godly and righteous than these men who had given up their entire lives for three years to follow their rabbi, do everything he said, lay their lives on the line between the Jewish and Roman authorities? If we're born good and have been ruined merely by a dysfunctional environment or biological abnormality, then any help we receive is intended only to heal those things. The goal is simply to restore us to our original good state. Jesus is only there to help us when we trip or make us feel better about ourselves. This, however, is not the gospel. The gospel is that Christ died for those men in the upper room, one by one, each in his own way, knowing his guilt, his fear, his shame, is that I, Christ died for sinners and then rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. It is only good news for desperate people, not nice people who occasionally do wrong things. And therefore, the goal of the gospel and all the means that deliver the grace of the gospel, the sacraments, prayer, scripture, and singing, the goal is a new person, not merely a person who has only been cleaned up a bit. And this is where we come to the blessing and the significance of the Lord's Supper. 
Again, Jesus says to his disciples, one of you will betray me. I know that. You're human. You can't save yourselves. Just like Israel before you, just like Adam before Israel, just like everyone in this room, we cannot do it on our own. We are covenant breakers. Just like Israel in Exodus, we've said, yes, Lord, we'll love you. We'll keep all of your promises. And then 10 minutes later, we're melting down our rings to make a golden calf. That's all of us. Jesus says, you know what? Hold on a second. Let me do it. Let me be the one who is broken, the lamb that is slain, the path that is laid. Let me then walk through the path. So that again, not only are you forgiven of your sins, the lamb atones for sin. Not only is your sin passed over, Again, it's not passed over in a cheap way. It's passed over you and put onto Christ. But not only that, you are brought into his family and his kingdom as a son or a daughter. That's what the supper does as we come by faith. If we come in disbelief, be careful. That's why we, don't, we, we never want anyone, just humbly, 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 okay, humbly. Don't want to step on any toes. Too hard. I do want to step on a few toes. This is why we say, as you come to the table, put your trust in Jesus. Because if you come faithlessly and make it a religious ritual, because it is a covenant meal, you're basically saying, I don't believe in any of this. Give me my snack and my curses. We don't want that for anyone. But if you are coming by faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus, even weak faith, tiny faith, look at us. Look at how feeble and frail we are. How, how lonely we all get. How hungry we are. And Jesus says, look, you don't have to have tremendous faith. It's not the size of your faith subjectively, but the object of your faith, Christ, who is sufficient to save. The supper is an invitation, inclusion, and embrace. It is a promise not only for the forgiveness of sins, but for the nourishment of sons and daughters. So let us come now and dine. Father, we pray that you would now be with us as we take this meal. Jesus, we praise you that you took this moment, this Passover moment, to explain to your hungry, fearful disciples the very thing that we so deeply need to understand. And Jesus, I love that you gave this meal in the upper room, those verses that we heard sweet Nico read from John 14, they were troubled, they were anxious. When did you give the meal? Not when these disciples were strong and deserving and feeling righteous and good about themselves as followers of their rabbi, but you gave them this meal as a promise and a gift precisely in the moment when their hunger was most acute. So as we celebrate Advent, your arrival, and the incarnation, God in flesh, fully God, fully man, God incarnate, we come to partake of this meal. We know that Jesus, your, your flesh isn't here, but we also know if we come by faith, your spiritual presence and reality is here. And that as we eat this meal with belief and trust in you, even though that's hard, now we can barely trust ourselves. We certainly don't trust half the stuff we read or see in the news or the world. But we trust you. We come with weak faith. And Lord, you have promised not only to nourish us on earth, for we are hungry not once, but in an ongoing way, but to lift us up spiritually into the heavenly realm, to lift us up in this meal 
to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We know the strength we have now, and by your grace, we know where we are going. So may that be true as we come now to partake of the new covenant Passover meal that points to Jesus, our King, our Savior, and our Lord. Amen.